Okay, well, as I mentioned in the prayer just then, we are in Mark chapter 13. Again today, this is going to be our third week in this uh, chapter. We're going to finish this chapter up. We just got one paragraph left. Um, we've done a lot of heavy lifting in this chapter, and, and honestly, like, it, that's what this chapter requires of us. Um, you know, we, we got to put on our thinking cap to really, truly grasp everything that's happening in this chapter, what Jesus is saying um, I don't think, th- I've, I've never met anyone who's read Mark 13 and they're just like, oh wow, that's su- that was super clear, I understand everything, I don't have any questions. I don't think any of us get to do that. Matter of fact, I think that the case, it's, it's most likely the case that we, this is one of those chapters we can read over and over and over and over again and, and still not be 100% sure of everything that's being talked about and, and, and what's going on. So, Today, we've been doing, like I said, some heavy lifting the last two weeks. Today, we're going to do just a little bit, just a little bit of of heavy lifting, but I'm going to focus our time mostly on just like four practical life applications uh, that we can consider from from chapter 13 and and what what I believe the big message is here for us. So let's, let's get our bearings here for a second. If you've not been with us, chapter 13 is Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Sometimes this is called the Olivet Discourse. If you read a book about end times or something, you'll inevitably see a chapter called the Olivet Discourse because they're talking about what Jesus is elaborating on here in in Mark chapter 13. You can read the parallel account of it in Luke and also in Matthew. This same exact moment is told in three of the Gospels. And here's what's happened. Remember, Jesus is in the last few days of his earthly ministry. So he's talking right now, and in just a few days ahead of where he's at right now, he's going to be crucified on the cross. That's where we're headed in Mark's gospel. But he's, he's come to Jerusalem to celebrate the, the Passover festival. And as he's there in the temple, he begins to be confronted by different religious groups. And they, they, they want to debate him. They want to discredit him. And he's going, having a back and forth. That we called that day question day. Just because so many questions going back and forth and, and as they were challenging Jesus. And so now that, that is over. Jesus has taught the crowds. It, he's already had his last public teaching. Jesus isn't going to teach to the crowds anymore. They're leaving the temple then. And, and on the way out the temple... One of the disciples says to Jesus, like, isn't this place beautiful? Isn't this amazing? Look at the pillars and and all all this. It's just incredible, the architecture. This would have been the most impressive building, the the most impressive structure they would ever get to witness in their lives. It's just, wow, look at this amazing temple. And then Jesus just drops a bomb on them right at that moment. They're in awe of the the temple. And Jesus said, oh, yeah, see all that? Take a good look. it's going to all come crumbling down. There's not going to be one stone left on top of another. It's going to be leveled. And this blew their minds. This blew their minds. They would have not wanted this. It, no, no Christian would have wanted to see the temple be leveled. But Jesus, he's, he's, this is a, a, a predictive prophecy here. He is talking about an event that has not occurred yet that he knows divinely. And so he's, share, he's sharing this with them. They go to the, to the Mount of Olives, which was near the temple. And, and so they're like, hey, Jesus, can you, can you tell us a little bit more about this? Can you elaborate on this a little bit more? What do you mean uh, the temple's going to be destroyed? And that's chapter 13, his explanation of their question. But here's, here's the question and how they ask it. And I'm going to read to you the question out of Matthew's account because it's a little more robust. It gives us a little deeper understanding of how big this question was, and we see that it's a two-part question. Here it is. 
The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? It's a loaded question. A lot of things they're asking here. Jesus, you just said the temple was going to be destroyed. This, this, this major uh, event here. And you, can you tell us more about when these things will be, the destruction of the temple? And also, tell us about the close of the age, this, this final end-time judgment when you make all this right again. And so, when you're reading in chapter 13, here's, here's, why, here's why the discussion is so robust. When is Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple? And when is Jesus talking about his second coming? If you can figure that out as you read chapter 13, you got it figured out. You have it all figured out. And so some people think the entire chapter 13 is all about exclusively the destruction of the temple. Some people say, no, it's actually all about his second coming. And then there's people like myself who think, well, some of it's about the destruction of the temple. And some of it is about his second coming. So I think everything we've read in the first 30 verses, we're going to pick up at verse 32, actually. The first 31 verses we've studied, I think Jesus is prophesying about the destruction of the temple. And that happened in 70 AD. So I think those first 31 verses have been fulfilled when the temple was destroyed. But I think there's a transition that takes place in the passage we're, ta- we're talking about today. And he's talking about his second coming now. And remember, the big, my biggest piece of evidence, I, I laid several things before you last week, but the, my biggest piece of evidence is in verse 30. And that's when Jesus says, everything I've been talking about, all of these signs and all of this activity I've been talking about, he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. He looks at them and says something that's pretty clear. If we just take it at face value, he says, everything I've been talking about, you're going to witness it. This people alive right now will witness it. So that's pretty clear. So what about the close of the end of the age? We know about these, these things, but what about that? Well, I think that, the close of the end of the age, his second coming, the end of time, I think that is what he's talking about from verses 32 through 37. So here's how we're going to start. Let's just read the whole thing in its entirety. Whole thing. And then I'll give you, I'll give you two reasons why I think he's talking about his second coming and not the destruction of the temple after that. So here is verses 32 through 37. It's entitled in my book, in my Bible, no one knows the day or hour. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now, there's several reasons why I think he's now talking about the close of the end of the age and his second coming. I'm going to give you two. And the two, two of the most compelling reasons. Here's the first one. Up to this point, all, all, for, all the first 31 verses in this chapter, he's been talking about signs. 
to anticipate the destruction of the temple. There's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be famines. There's going to be false messiahs popping up everywhere. And this is all going to build towards the destruction of the temple. He's giving them signs. Why? So they can anticipate when it will happen. So that they can time it, right? But now what he's talking about is something that they can't time. He's not giving them any signs for this portion of what he's talking about. Matter of fact, he goes out of his way to say, of that day, uh, of that day, of that hour, no one knows. These things I've been talking about, you're gonna, this generation is going to see this before they pass away. But that day, I'm not going to give you signs for that day because no one knows. I don't even know. The angels don't know. I don't know. Only the Father knows. So I can't give you all of these signs like I've been giving you. Because it's a totally separate event. So that's, that, that's pretty compelling to me. You can't time it. You can't time it, so I'm not going to give you these signs. No one knows. Now, if I were just reading Mark's account of this moment and that's it, you might be able to convince me that he's still talking about the destruction of the temple. I might, I might buy into the, the whole chapter being exclusively about the destruction of the temple. Because one could say, well, he's saying that day or hour. He's saying the exact, like, at 12.05 p.m. on a Tuesday. You can't get that specific. And so that, that would be their argument that he's still talking about the destruction of the temple and not his second coming and not judgment. If I was just reading Mark's account, I might be like, okay, that's a pretty solid argument. But remember... The same moments in Luke, in the same exact moment, the parallel account is also in Matthew. And anytime you have the same moment talked about in more than one gospel, you need to go consider the facts in all of the gospels that have that moment in them because inevitably you will have a more robust understanding, you'll have more information to consider. So Matthew chapter 24 is the Olivet Discourse in Matthew's Gospel. But he has chapter 25, which is additional information. A whole chapter, a whole chapter uh, of additional information that Jesus talks about in this very same moment that we don't have in Mark. So in other words, you could take chapter 25 of Matthew and you could just place it at the end of chapter 13 in Mark and the conversation just keeps going. And so your homework passage, you, from time to time, if you come to the journey, you know that I'm always encouraging you to do a study on your own that would complement what I preach about. If you want to do that today, go read chapter 25 of Matthew. The conversation goes on and on and on. And he has the parable of the ten virgins, which is uh, really just elaborating on no one knows. You've got to be ready, so you've got to be prepared. And then he has uh, the parable of the talents which is a parable teaching about stewarding our time between now and his second coming. Hey, you know what, you, this, this time you have in between here is a gift, and, and you're going to be accountable for how you spend that time. And so that, that would pl also play into the fact that he's talking about his second coming. But then right after the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents, he teaches explicitly on his second coming and final judgment. Like he's talking about that so explicit, no one denies it. There's, it's when he talks about separating the, the sheep from the goats and, and how we're going to have to stand before him in judgment. And so that's a pretty explicit description of what he's talking about there in Matthew 25. And so I think when you consider Matthew 25, 
and, and you consider the fact that he's no longer talking about signs and stuff anymore, I think it's very clear that he is talking about the, the final judgment. That's what this, conver- this conversation has that turned into. And so with regard to his second coming, with regard to the second advent, final judgment, that moment that is still ahead of us, no one knows the hour. No one knows the day. We don't get to know that. The Bible says it plain and clear. We don't, we don't get to know. So you might have this question on your mind. If we can't know, we can't time it, well then how come so many self-proclaimed prophets come out of the woodwork in our society today and predict the second coming of Christ? Because it happens all the time, especially in America. But if you look at you know, world history, you'll find people all over the place. So I'm going to share them with you, a few of them. I've done this before. There's so, there's so many examples. Like, why do they, why do, they do this? Why do, why do they insist on um, predicting the second coming of Christ when it says we can't, we can't know so explicitly? Well, they're nuts. That's one reason why. But another reason why is because they're, they're, they're just banking on the fact that you're going to set your Bibles down and not listen to Jesus and listen to them instead. And then they, and then they, they can uh, manipulate you and, and get you to give a lot of money and, and, and take advantage of you. That's, that's why they do that. That's why they do that. And it works. It works. One of my favorite examples of this, I'll start in England. Uh, in 1806, in Leeds, England, there's a lady named Mary Bate and a prophetess, a self-proclaimed prophetess named Joanna Southcott. Just so you know, this actually happens. It's all over. By the way, when you just start searching this on the Internet, entire websites dedicated to giving you examples of people who have predicted the second coming of Christ and what happened. Uh, So, I mean, we get through hundreds and hundreds of examples. But anyway, this lady in Leeds, England, she claimed that God was speaking to her and her church through a chicken. She had chickens. And and this, this one hen specifically was laying an egg one day, and she went over and she picked up the egg, and it said, Jesus is coming back. And she's like, wow! They just came out of the chicken, and it says Jesus is coming back. And so she took it to Joanna Southcott, the self-proclaimed prophetess of her church, and they're like, wow, Jesus is coming back. And so they start telling everybody in the church and everybody in the community. It makes, makes national news, and people are coming from miles around. And you would come to their church, and she would have this hen, and you would watch this hen as part of the service. And, and you know, at least it wasn't snakes. It was a hen this time. They, 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 this hen lays an egg, and here it is. Jesus is coming. And she had three of these eggs that she put on display, and in 1806, you could pay a penny per person to get to examine and look at the egg. Uh, and, and so, long story short, this is like, you can't make this up. This is just so amazing. And, and long story short, she was actually taking, she was caught taking these eggs, obviously, riding on them. Jesus is coming and shoving them back up the, the poor hen and taking it to church, saying, here's my hen, here's my hen. Oh, there's an egg. Hey, look here. Oh, Jesus is coming back. And then, like, show that off. Like, wow, the, the things people come up with. But, man, it, it, they got a lot of pennies to show for it. It was very lucrative business. Uh, one of the more famous moments in, in our American history, though, is William Miller, and, and so he predicted that Jesus would come back between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. And he had uh, the exact, he pinpointed the date at one point uh, as April 23rd. And so he told everybody, that's the day Jesus is coming back. It's going to be right over here. We need to all sell our possessions and get ready because Jesus is coming back. 
And so that's what they did. People were selling their houses. They were selling all of their possessions and just liquidating their estates, giving it away, and showing up. And they showed up at this day. And these people were called Millerites, which I really appreciate. Don't call yourself a Christian if you're not going to listen to what Jesus said and take, you know, Bill's advice for it. You know, <laughs> William Miller, uh, call yourself a, a Millerite if you're going to take his word over Jesus. So at least they're consistent there. They're the Millerites. Well, that day came and went, and it, was, it goes down in, in the history books as the Great Disappointment. You can Google the Great Disappointment and see that moment. Uh, of course, Joseph Smith, uh, founder of the Mormon Church, he, he uh, predicted the second coming of Christ in February 1835. He said it was going to happen within 56 years. Obviously, that came and went, just another false prophet. Uh, we had, when the 80s got here, that was a hot spot. That was a hot spot. Late 70s, 80s, that was a, that was a really hot spot of when it came to predict, predicting the second coming of Christ. You could go, I mean, there's tons of names here. Uh, you probably heard of Pat Robertson, uh, the 700 Club. He predicted in 1982 uh, Christ would return. Um, the, let's see, going on, the, the Church of God denomination had a few people. Uh, the founder of the Church of God denomination actually predicted the return of Christ. Um, uh, Ronald Wineland in 2008, that was not too long ago, he predicted the uh, return of Christ in 2008. Uh, but the, most, the one you've probably heard of most recently in the news, uh, it, was really, uh, it, was a lot, it was really in the news right when we launched the journey uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, a, a man by the name of Harold Camping, maybe you've heard of Family Radio, this was a radio ministry based out of California broadcasts all over the planet Earth, had a huge, huge following. Harold Camping was notorious for predicting the second coming of Christ. And he, he predicted that Jesus would come back in 1994. You can Google, get on Amazon. You can still order his book right now for $5.54. I just checked this morning. You can get a copy of the book titled 1994 because that book is the book he released that, the, about the second coming of Christ. And so uh, he predicted September 6th, 1994, Jesus would come back. Well, I was 14 that year. I don't remember this going on. But uh, and, and September 6th came and went, and he was like, oh, you know what? My calculations were a little bit off. September 29th, 1994 is actually the day. Well, that day came and went, and he said, no, actually, I, my, I, sorry, I, I couldn't read my own writing here. I scribbled on my calculations. October 3rd, 1994. Every time he kept changing the date, it got more and more attention. He got more and more followers and more and more donations. And uh, again, this is a worldwide broadcast. So he, he wisened up a little bit. And so in 2005, he predicted, this, he got a bigger buffer zone this time. In 2005, he said, Jesus is going to return. May 21st, 2011. This is why this was in the news. We, we launched in uh, uh, 2012. But, and, and so May 21st, 2011, uh, that's when Jesus is coming back. So from 2005 to 2011, this would be a part of his routine broadcast, talking about the second coming of Christ. And it built all of this attention. And, and, and so May 21st, 2011 shows up. Nothing happens. Well, what's Harold going to say about that? Oh, well, that was the spiritual judgment. That was, that's why you didn't see anything. It was in the spirit world. That was the spiritual judgment. But the physical judgment you're waiting for, that's actually going to happen October 21st, 2011. October 21st, 2011 rolls around. You know what he did? He retired. And his net worth is $75 million. Wow! Wow! Business 
was good predicting Christ's second coming, even though he was wrong every single time. And even though Jesus said, you're not going to know the day or the hour, that didn't stop Harold. And here's the thing. They did an interview in 2012. I did see this interview. I think it was on 60 Minutes. In 2012, they asked him, well, all these, all these failed predictions, all your critics say you're wrong. What do you say to all these critics that, that just, um, you know, in your, in your eyes persecute you and, and, and bash you? He said, and this is what he said, no, no joke. He said, you know, I've come to believe that my critics are right. And then he quotes Mark chapter 13. He quotes Jesus. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. My, my critics were right when they said the Bible was right and I was wrong. <laughs> I mean, wow. Wow. I mean, you can go, these websites can be fun to check out. It's actually really sad. So many people have been taken advantage of. And when you go and you read the history there, you'll see all these calculations, mathematical equations, and some of them are really simple, and, and, and some of them are, you can't follow any of it. It's just pure nonsense or whatever. But they're all doing the, self, they're all doing the same thing. You know, no matter how elaborate the description, no matter, no matter how elaborate the mathematical equation is that they use or how they came to this conclusion to predict the date or time, they're really, they're just doing the same thing that the lady did with the chicken in Leeds, England. They're, they're, they're manipulating people. It's a hoax. It's not true. They're lying. And they're, they're taking advantage of people. They're trying to gain attention so they can get more followers and get more donations. And... Um, they're convincing people to listen to them over and above the Bible. Um, and that's a very dangerous place to, to be. Uh, but it works, and that's why it'll never stop. People will keep doing it. And in our future, there will be more predictions, and there will be more people who teach Christians. To, you know, I know Jesus said that, but listen to me instead. They'll, they'll, they'll do a lot of that. And, and it's really tragic. It's really tragic. But if we want to be serious about this passage and what Jesus says. We, we need to get away from the predictions. We need to get away from, from the self-proclaimed prophets that can pinpoint when Jesus is coming back. And we need to start taking Jesus serious and taking his warnings serious here in chapter 13. Did you see what Jesus is, is telling his disciples, though? All the predictions and all that stuff aside, what is he telling them? Be on guard. Keep awake. Stay awake. I thought about doing something really provocative with this sermon and, and entitling it Woke Christianity. Because <laughs> he's talking about being awake. Because that concept of being awake is all over the New Testament. I get so frustrated with some of, uh, of these definitions. It's so hard to follow. I don't even know what being woke means anymore, right? It means this, and then it's changed this, and then it's a good thing, and then it's a bad thing, and then it's a good thing again, and it's a bad thing. Well, it depends on who's defining all these things. Uh, so maybe, maybe I will be provocative when I, when I upload this sermon. Cody did a sermon on woke Christianity. Well, I am, because that is a very clear concept in the New Testament. We need to be awake. We need to stay alert, stay awake, be watchful. That same Greek word that's, that is translated stay awake, it's used all over the New Testament. You should stay awake. And so in our culture... The, the concept of staying awake can mean so many different things, and, and again, it can change and evolve. But when the Bible talks about staying awake, it means something very specific, and, it ha and the definition has not changed. 
It's, it's stayed the same the whole time. And so that's how I want to spend our time today is thinking about what the Bible means when it teaches us and instructs us and Jesus commands us to stay awake. What does that even mean, to stay awake, to be vigilant? Well, there's, there's four ways, as I was examining this Greek word in, in different books of the Bible in the New Testament, four ways that it's used. And I thought that would be a, a healthy way to spend this time together. Jesus is saying, stay awake. All right, I want to stay awake. Well, obviously, he's not talking about physically not going to sleep. This is a, he's using this as a, as a teaching illustra illustration. So in what sense do we need to stay awake? How? What do you mean by saying stay awake? Well, be, being vigilant in Scripture, staying awake, that same Greek word, I want to talk about four different places that it's used. Here's number one. If you want to be vigilant, you want to stay awake, you need to be vigilant for false teachers. That is how that same Greek word is used several different times in the New Testament to stay alert, be awake. And of course, Jesus has been warning about false messiahs even in the context, right, in chapter 13. But elsewhere, even in Scripture, let, let me just read to you Acts 20. This is when Paul is, is uh, talking to the, the leaders of the church of Ephesus. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Same exact Greek word. Instead of saying stay awake, it's translated be alert here. But it's the same Greek word. Be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. When it comes to false teachers, when it comes to false teaching, it can be fun to talk about the very obvious ones, right? Like when you talk about a prophetess in England in the 1800s with a chicken. That's, that's a pretty easy one. But when you're talking about false teaching and false teachers, it's all not that clear. But it's something you should always be on the lookout for because it can be so subtle. It can sound so right and yet be so wrong when, when you use scripture to analyze what they're saying. Don't sleep on this issue. Never sleep on this issue. You will have people harshly criticize you if you are critical of certain ministries or certain people or certain sectors of Christianity. And they will say you're being mean. They'll say you're being unloving. And even though you're being faithful what to what, uh, to what t uh, Scripture commands you to do, they'll, they'll say that that very behavior that scripture says is being faithful and loving, they'll say that that behavior is actually cruel and mean. And so what, what scripture wants us to understand, you need to be less, less worried about offending people and more worried about offending God. We need to be faithful to his word. You know, I don't claim to have everything right. I don't claim to speak with ultimate authority. I don't claim that my doctrine and theology are perfect. As a matter of fact, I routinely encourage you, examine every single thing that I say through the lens of Scripture. I need to, to preach expository sermons. That means teaching the Bible, uh, you know, for what it is, finding the intent that is there because we can read and understand words. But you need to be expository listeners to everything that I say. That means when you're listening to me, you're critical of what I say. I want you to be critical of what I say because I'm not always right. But be critical of what I say with the lens of Scripture. If you think I'm wrong just because you think I'm wrong, well, you haven't really made a point yet. If you think I'm wrong because this Scripture contradicts what I'm saying, now you have a point. 
And so as we analyze what pastors say, and sometimes, man, if you're even the slightest bit critical of a celebrity pastor nowadays, they have like cult-like followings. I have several pastors in, uh, in, that are well-known that I love, but sometimes I disagree with them. I read all their commentaries and stuff like that. Sometimes I'm like, well, that's not as compelling as, as this guy's argument. And we're called to examine things through the lens of Scripture. But man, people can be so cruel and so mean. Now, there, there's a difference between being critical and being overly critical, right? We can be critical in an appropriate, helpful way, and then we can take that too far and be overly critical or overly judgmental. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, do not judge. He's, saying, he's not saying, don't be discerning in any way. Don't judge anything. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't be overly judgmental. We want to do this with a loving spirit. So sometimes I know that I've crossed that line. So sometimes it just makes me so mad, and I'm not careful with my words, and I'm overly critical, I'm overly harsh. I've had to repent of that. I've been called out on that before. And so when I'm called out for that reason, I'll accept that rebuke, and, and I'll repent. And I'll be overly critical in the future, I know, and I'll need Christian brothers and sisters just like you do to call me out on that. But we need to be critical. And it is my responsibility as an elder to help shepherd the flock and protect the flock from false teaching. And when you're reading through scripture and you're teaching through scripture, you're constantly, it's constantly brought up and you're constantly supposed to remind people to do this. And that's, that's why I do that. Because I'm being faithful to what the word says. And I don't want you to get sleepy. Sleepy Christians buy into everything. Sleepy Christians are taken advantage of. Sleepy Christians are manipulated by really good speakers into believing all sorts of stupid things. And we need to protect ourselves from that. And scripture demands that we do it. And so that's why I want to take that serious. So you want to be vigilant? You want to stay awake? Be on the lookout for false teaching. If you can't identify it, you've probably already bought into it. Number two, when scripture talks about the same Greek word when it's being used, to be vigilant, you need to be vigilant by caring for the church. That is a way that we stay awake as Christians. We are to be watchful in the sense that we take care of and provide for and serve the church. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14, seemingly one of the most macho verses in the whole Bible. Listen to this. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, when I see that line in there, act like men, I can just hear the Rocky Four montage playing in the back of my mind. And I start, you know, I just want to flex, you know. But if you're reading it like that, you're, uh, you're not understanding what Paul's trying to communicate to us. He's saying, act like men in the sense that you do, let everything that you do be done in love. That's what real men do. They're loving. You need to be loving. You want to be a strong Christian man? You need to do everything out of love. Ugh, I don't always do that. You need to do everything out of love. If you, look, if, if, if you went and studied that passage and others like it in Scripture, it's talking about you know, being present, providing for not only your immediate family, but your church family. That's what real men do. They're to love their wives like Christ loved the church. It's a sacrificial love that puts her before yourself and you're, you're going to die for her, do everything for her. It's, it's sacrificial love that makes sure that your family has time for church and that you get them there and they get to exist in that community and reap the benefits of that community. But it's not just about your wife. It's not just about your family. It's about everybody else's family too that's why we have to take care of the church because it's not just about you you don't just show up here for you you show up here for other families too so when you're like oh man i'm not feeling it today you have an obligation to care for other families 
to encourage other men. We want to not only provide for our own families, but provide for other people too. When you, when you look in, in that same context of 1 Thessalonians uh, 5, you know, it talks about, you know, don't, you know, let us not sleep. You need to keep awake. He talks about encouraging one another and building one another up in the Lord. And so, men, don't fall asleep on this. Don't fall asleep on this issue. If you fall asleep on this issue, you're going to let down the men around you. You're going to let down the families around you who need you to encourage them. Like, we need to stand firm in our faith in the sense that we invest in one another. I think one of the biggest problems with men in the church today, and I'm just speaking of the church as a whole, the global church, men are so weak today in the sense that they come to church, most men, they come to church, and they want to be supported. They show up, what do you got for me today? How can this serve me? How much time we, we got? Let's see, we, it's about time to get out of here. Help me, and then I got to go. I got other stuff to do. It's all about them, and, and they don't come to church to support anybody else but themselves. And very few men will actually come to church with the heart and the intent to say, I'm going to prop someone else up today. I'm going to serve in a way that's going to encourage them specifically. And I'm going to support other families and not just my own. And so, so many men in the church are, are not stepping up. They're just weak because they just think about themselves. We need to step up and make this a priority of caring for one another, building one another up, encouraging one another. Stand firm in the faith in the sense that you're, part of the, you're a pillar of the church. You're supporting people when they come in here. You're talking to them with, intention, with intentional conversations and helping to be watchful over their souls, not just your own. So if you want to stay awake, you better make that a priority. Don't sleep on that, men. We need you. Here's the third way the Bible talks about being vigilant. Be vigilant through prayer. I want to read to you out of Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. It says, continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. How sleepy have you become when it comes to thanksgiving in prayer? A way to stay awake, a way to be vigilant, is to always take a heart of gratitude into a time of prayer with the Lord. I, I bet you many of us go through seasons like this, because I think they coincide with one another. A lot of times when we go through seasons of life in which we're not grateful or expressing our gratitude in, our gratitude in prayer to God, it coincides with a time of increasing doubt about the promises of God. It, it, it's, a, it's a time in which we maybe become more cynical when we think about the, the power of God. Oh, he's probably not going to do that in my life, probably not going to do that in their life. This is probably all going to go wrong. God's not going to rescue any of us. They tend to go hand in hand. When we're not thankful in prayer, we tend to grow in cynicism and doubt. And Paul says, wake up. A way that you need to wake up is you need to have a heart of gratitude, be a, have a heart of thankfulness in prayer. Do you ever go into a time of prayer just to thank God for everything that you have? I've talked to some people, and I've, I've heard some pastors say this too, and I think it's a great idea. When they pray in the morning, the first thing that they do is pray of, about all the things they're thankful for. It, their morning prayers are exclusively dedicated. They start their day, they get out of bed, and whatever they're doing while they're brushing their teeth or doing their devotional, whatever, the first thing they do is go to God in prayer and just talk about all the things that they're thankful for. And I think it's a great way to start your day. Isn't that just 
seem like it would change how you live your, the rest of your day. And sometimes I'm so bad at it. But here's what you do. It's really easy. Has God blessed you in your life? Have you just taken a moment to stop? Sometimes we get full of so much anxiety and so much worry and so much doubt and so much cynicism because we're caught up in trying to anticipate the future and trying to time everything just right in the future so we can control it, that we forget to stop and look around and just say, man, I'm just thankful for so many things. My house, my family, my job. Look at, look at all the ways God has provided for me. And just start with the little things. And just thanking God for all of the things that you have. A warm bed, you know, clean sheets. It can, it can be so simple. But when you go into prayer like that, I really think a heart of gratitude in prayer, this has been my experience, it's like the caffeine of faith. When you start taking that heart of gratitude into prayer and starting your day like that, it can change everything about your entire day and it can knock you out of that cycle of cynicism and doubt so fast. It wakes you up to the truth that God is very present and your awareness of his presence will increase if you have a heart of gratitude and prayer. The fourth way I want to mention to you that the Bible uses the same Greek word to stay awake is in 1 Peter 5.8, and this one's so important. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you have a weakening vigilance of sin in your life, you will become sleepy. You will go to sleep as a Christian. So here's the question I want you to ask yourself. Here's these two questions. Ask yourself this. When was the last time you really felt convicted about your own sin? When's the last time you just sat and, and contemplated and mourned over sin, over a specific sin in your life? Is that part of the routine? Because if it's not part of the routine, you are getting sleepy. You are going to sleep on the Christian life. When's the last time you went into prayer and confessed a sin, explicitly confessed a sin to God, told him about what you're doing, as if God doesn't know, right? Tell him about what you're doing, the sin that you need to repent of, the sin that you need to cut out of your life. When's the last time you confessed an actual sin? If you got long seasons of time in which you've not mourned over your sin and you're not confessing sin to God or to someone else, you're going to sleep. You're living a sleepy, lazy Christian life. Paul says, wake up. Oh, it's Peter, in that, a specific example there in 1 Peter. But if you're living a life like that, you're, you're, just, you're just completely ignoring the planks that are in your own eye, right? You're not being sober-minded. You know, if those questions are convicting to you, though, uh, that's good. If you're feeling guilty when you think about being vigilant in these ways and you feel like maybe you failed, well, there's hope in Scripture. That's, this is why we go to the Bible, because we're inviting conviction in our life. We're not afraid of conviction. We invite it. We want to experience this on a routine basis because that's part of staying awake. But you know what we see in Scripture is, is, is not just this message that says, try harder. You're not doing good enough. It's not just this message that beats us over the head and, and beats us down in the ground and, and because, you know, we're not doing good enough and we're, we're falling short. That's, that, you know, that's a reality. I'm not doing as well as I, I think I should do. I should always be trying to excel and do better and better. But, you know, one way 
Scripture ministers to us is that it just shows us and is honest with us about the Christian life and how we fall back into these seasons of doubt and cynicism and, and, and how we fall into these seasons of, of time which we're never grateful and, and we're just falling asleep in our faith. And we get a visual representation of that in the very next chapter in Mark. I mean, we get, we get to see, like Jesus has just told the disciples to stay awake, be watchful, don't fall asleep on this. And then in the very next chapter, we're going to see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. And what happens? Stay here and pray. Be watchful. That same Greek word is going to show up in the next chapter. Be watchful. Stay alert. I'm going to go pray. He goes and prays. He comes back. What are they doing? They're asleep. They fell asleep. Wake up. Stay alert. Be watchful. He goes and prays. He comes back. They're asleep. Come on, wake up. Three times they fall asleep. It's like, man, and that visual representation, it's like looking in a mirror, right? Oh, man, I feel like that's us. But what, what, what Scripture, what I believe is happening in Scripture and how the Holy Spirit uses Scripture is it helps us to be encouraged to excel and, and to be uh, encouraged to pursue these things. But at the same time, don't put too much hope in yourself. Ultimately, our hope is in the faithfulness of Jesus. Like, they, 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 were, they weren't faithful. They weren't staying awake. They weren't being alert. And it was Jesus who came back and said, hey, wake up, wake up. And I, I believe that's, that's why we need this gathering. That's why we need scripture. Because we constantly fall into these ruts in which we're not faithful. And we need to be nudged. We need to be woken up. We need that reminder to have the, the caffeine of faith and thankfulness and things like that. And that's what today is about. It's about encouraging you to stay awake, to be watchful, to be vigilant so that we can endure to the end. That is what Jesus is trying to convey to the disciples in this moment, ultimately in chapter 13, because he is faithful and God will come through and do what he says he's going to do. And that's the encouragement you and I are supposed to receive as we study this moment in chapter 13, that as we await his second coming, that we would be vigilant in these ways also, and that we would endure until his return as well. That's our hope, and that's our, that's our prayer today. So let's go into a time of prayer, and then we'll take communion to remember this gospel. Lord, again, I thank you for chapter 13 and these moments together, Lord. And as I contemplated how this concept plays out in Scripture of being vigilant, of being watchful, staying alert, Lord, it was so convicting. But Lord, I pray that we wouldn't waste that guilt today that we wouldn't just put our heads down and think, oh, I'll never get this right, or be discouraged, but Lord, that we, we could be encouraged by these moments, that we need these moments, moments of studying it together, and, and, and we need to be edified uh, through these passages of, of Scripture that we can, we can wake up when we're getting drowsy in our faith. But I pray that we would be a church that would stay alert, that would be on guard against false teaching. I pray that we would be a church that would always remember the things that we should be grateful for and, and express that gratitude in a, in a heart of gratitude and prayer. And, and Lord, that we, would, um, Lord, that we would be mindful of the sin in our lives and watchful. And Lord, that we would be men who would take care of one another and, and that we would be a church family that genuinely invests in one another using these these simple gatherings, whether it be on a Sunday morning or at a Panera Bread or Jeremiah's Coffee House or wherever we happen to be gathering, Lord, that we would be so intentional about these moments. And always remember, it's not just about us. Some of us, Lord, we need to participate in these extra activities, Lord, just because we need to be investing in other 
brothers and sisters in the faith more than what we are. And Lord, I pray that we would seize these opportunities not only to be ministered to, but to minister to others, all to your glory. Lord, help us to remember your gospel today, that we can find hope and truth and be saved by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray.